Hello and welcome back to It's Not Just Black and White, where the topics that we discuss are most likely going to be controversial. So, if you're easily offended or even very difficultly offended, this may not be the place for you. As always, my name is Eli Laik and I'm sitting here with Jordan Brown and Corey Bearclaw. So guys, I know that we did some things a little bit different this week. What we decided to do was watch three separate documentaries in order to gain a better understanding of our topic, which is inequality. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's really relevant for us to start off with is the recent Robin Hood controversy. We saw a lot of different things happen. I was wondering, Corey, if you can you know, kind of walk us through what exactly happened. Yeah, definitely. To start off, essentially, what happened was, was a bunch of hedge funds essentially went at GameStop, uh, AMC, and things like that, and they shorted the stock. And by shorting a stock, that essentially means that you want to borrow shares that you don't technically own and sell them on the open market, and then you know you get a charge and in interest rate. It's kind of like taking out a loan, but you get mm -hmm. you take it out with the stock. And what the main motivation behind that is that you want to you want the stock to go down. You you believe that it's it's a bad company or it's bad things are about to happen. This and that. Um, so these hedge funds essentially did that, and uh, there is an excessive amount of shorting in, the, in these specific stocks. And they actually had 160% of the stock shorted. So that oh. means that of the uh, of the total amount of shares yeah. that that are in the open market, they shorted all of them plus an, another 60% of them. So there, oh. so some of them got double shorted. Um, and what, what ended up happening is that the Redditors noticed this, people on Reddit, and they're like, hey, you know, we like GameStop. We, we want to keep GameStop around. We're going to buy into this because we don't think it's going to go down. So there's a couple of people who started it. Long story short, uh, what happened was they, they ended up buying up into the stock. The stock ended up increasing. And then over a certain amount of time, the, it's, people started get, catching wind of it. The stock kept on increasing. More people started buying mm -hmm. it. Then mm -hmm. it got on the major news, mm -hmm. and more and more people started buying it. And, at, wow. and then, after a certain amount of time, the stock got so high that it got past the amount of money that the people shorted it for. Because when you short it, you short it for a specific price. It backfired. Yeah, yeah. it backfired. And then, so what happens is, after a certain amount of time. People have to redeem those shares. They have to buy those shares back when they're called. Mm -hmm. And so you have to buy them for a higher price and that obviously causes more buying. So you're increasing the price more. Long story short, they got into a short squeeze where people need, where the brokerages demanded the, the stocks to be returned so that so the hedge funds had to buy them, further increasing the price. And then more people started buying them on the other side, further increasing the price. Yeah. It all got political because soon enough, Robinhood decided that, you know, hey, fuck it. We're gonna, we're, we're not gonna let you buy GameStop. We're not gonna let you buy uh, AMC and stuff like that. Wow. And the main reason behind that was because the, their clearing firm, the, the, the firm that essentially does the buying and selling for Robinhood and manages who buys from who, who sells to who, blah, 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 like that. Mm -hmm. They're a main investor. They, they were the main investor in a hedge fund that was shorting the stock. And so that caused them to lose more money. And so now Robinhood decided, hey, you know, we're gonna stop this. We're, we're not gonna let you do this. And it it essentially was like a power grab. They're saying, hey, we'll give you this free service and we'll give you the ability to do it. Yeah. But then, you know, when it starts hurting us or starts hurting our friends, we're not going to let you do this. Yeah. And that's yeah. what really caused a lot of awareness to the inequality that the retail, you know, yeah. short guy investor yeah, has yeah. compared to the major guys. Yeah. I don't know, like, like how much have you heard about it, Ali? So let me, I was going to ask you, right? So is Robin Hood, let's look at the financial industry or the financial sector. Are they a fairly large player in, in the industry or? Robin Hood is the main, main uh, guy in terms of the retail industry, you know, they're all free. They start right. off free and even in their name, you know, Robin Hood right. steal from the rich and give to the poor. But that's not evident today, is it? No, it's not. It's not really evident at all because what's happening is essentially they're stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. Yeah. Yeah. That's more, most likely, in my opinion of the whole thing, they were able to change the rules of the game in the middle of the game. Yeah. And the first like question I had for you, Corey, was how did uh, 
these uh, army of like traders on like Reddit, how did they know that these firms were betting on the company going down? Like, how do, is that like public knowledge to know that people are shorting it? Yeah, so there's there's many different sites that you can use to to uh, look into the research of how much it's shorted. There's a certain volume. There's this thing called a float that shows the percentage of shares outstanding, and then um, and then sh shows a short float and stuff like that. So it can definitely show you how many sh shares are shorted. Uh, you know, you could go on Market Watch and you can see it. Uh, you can go to a bunch of different sites and it's very public knowledge. So that's what kind of caused all this was that everyone started seeing all these stocks being shorted and then it gained momentum to other shares like AMC, yeah. BlackBerry yeah. Um, and things like that. So what does this say, you know, about the future of retail investors? What does it really mean? Well, I think, it, well, like on Rob, it's bad on Robinhood's part. They yeah. lost a, a lot of investors. As they should, themselves. as yeah. they deserve. They definitely I think the deserve. company's gonna go away yeah. after this, right? Uh, no, I think they're gonna face some serious uh, public backlash, but I think they're the not idea, gonna go away. They're I think the big. idea of Robin Hood is too strong, it will survive. Yeah, it will survive. There's other competitors around where a lot of people went to, and what happened was that all of these people who couldn't buy BlackBerry or AMC or, or GameStop, yeah. uh, what they did is they went to Google, they went to Apple reviews and reviewed it and gave it totally negative reviews and yeah, tried to trash yeah, it down to one star instead yeah. of what it was averaging was like four and a half stars. Of course. Um, but you know, tying back to the inequality of it, it's like they, they, they essentially ruined it for the people who are trying yeah. to do something different with their finances. It's like, hey, we want you, we want you to take your finances into your own, uh, own control but then, you know, when you're fine, when you start controlling your own finances to the detriment of us, we're going to stop you from controlling yeah, your own yeah, finances. And they like, so, so does this exactly. mean that the stock market is rigged in some type of way? Because they tanked the stock on purpose, right? By not letting anybody buy, you can yeah. sell yeah. Uh, from a large part of the market. Like, of course, the stock's going to go yeah, because down. Yeah, because what happened was essentially the hedge fund still had the power to buy, the, buy all of those stocks. But uh -huh. all the people, the majority of the people who are on Robinhood, actually, I think it was a, a, over 50% of the people who had a Robinhood account owned a share of uh, GameStop. Wow. So, I think they were pushing that stock very early on. And that was like the earlier relationships they had with the stock is the GameStop stock. Because I was on Robinhood yeah. back in the day when Corey told me to be on Robinhood, right? Oh, yeah. I see. So, yeah, and I th it's a total power grab. It, it totally messes with the ability for the normal average day consumer to just be able to have any opportunities yep. to invest their money. Because imagine if one day Robinhood says, no, Apple, you can't buy Apple. You, you can only sell Apple. No, we're not gonna give you the ability to buy the best company. It sounds yeah. illegal. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, illegal. It sounds very, illegal. You know, obviously, yeah. you know, in the in retrospect, it's really their their choice to do whatever they That's want. Like stock manipulation. Yeah, but it can yeah. be stock manipulation if the, if the whole motivation behind it was that you don't want your main investors. See to go that out. actually, this actually provides us with a deeper question, or kind of more of the idea that we're going to be addressing today. So the deeper question, and we'll ask this over and over again. You know, if you had the opportunity to stack the rules of the game against you, wouldn't you do it? And the first uh, first documentary that we watched was actually Requiem for the American Dream. It's Noam Chomsky, a known criticizer of society and how we shouldn't conform and so on and so forth for decades now. So the first thing I did when I saw the title, I looked up the word requiem, okay? I wanted to know what exactly. It actually comes from uh, the Roman Catholic Church, which is, so it's a mass for the repose of the souls of the dead, okay? Or it's an act or token of remembrance. So basically what Chomsky is saying is that the American dream is dead and we are currently at its wake in remembrance, right? It's a heavy claim and a heavy thing to say. Um, but on that, let me ask both of you, and I have my own perspective on this as well. So what is the American dream? What were you told and what does it mean to you? In my opinion, honestly, I think the question is, what is the American dream today? Because I think the American dream today is very different from its origin maybe like 50, 60 years yeah, ago, right? Yeah. Uh, the American dream is no longer you work hard, you can get a house or anything like that. Now today, especially for the middle class, you can work harder and harder and harder, but you still won't get anywhere. Uh, so the American dream today 
It's hard to say. I don't know what it is. I... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can say, oh, the American dream is to be free, make money and support your family and, yeah. you know, live, live a healthy lifestyle. But in reality, those the, the opportunities are so stacked against the average day to even the, you know, the bottom 50% of the world mm -hmm. who generate maybe 50%, I mean, 50000 to $70,000 mm -hmm. in, in household income. Mm -hmm. How are those people who, you know, the resources are still there, but, but the, it's, the cost for those resources have significantly increased, yep. but their salaries have stayed yep. the same for mm -hmm. the past 50 years. Yeah. So, yes, the American dream is there, and it would be great to be able to achieve it. You know, you got to work your butt off to get to it, but it... It, it's almost like it's all stacked against you. Yeah. But, you know, Ali, what, what's yours? See, like on that, in, in my perspective, right, we, as an immigrant, we came to this country for that notion, right? We wanted great schools, we wanted education for our children, and we wanted us to be financially secure. Not that it wasn't available in, on the other side of the world, it was just a political climate and a political landscape that's only stacked for itself. And we'll get more into that as well. But, you know, uh, it, what Corey was saying is you have to work your butt off to achieve. Technically, you just have to have good enough credit to achieve that dream. But at the same time, what's the cost of it? You're like a debt slave at that point yeah. to be having a white picket fence, your two beautiful kids and that lovely wife you've always wanted or however the dream goes for whoever it may be. Yeah. But I think the American dream is today at least a credit trap. But at the, other, at the end of the day, the American dream is just a dream of an American. What I mean by that is it's a for that individual person because we care about individual expression those are our values it comes down to what that individual thinks about the dream right? so who is living the american dream what classes are living the american dream can you come from the lower class and still get that american dream or do you have to be born in a higher class and then you know there's room for failure or whatever and i think this ties back into uh, our first topic on robin hood right yeah uh, we got these average of people who are working really hard or trying to do something with their money. They're learning how to trade because of like coronavirus and they're excited mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. They go in there and try and make some money. They're making money. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, it's fourth down. They call a timeout and they get two more downs. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, the hell it's not fair. Yeah. See, that's a great, you, you asked a phenomenal question, right? So, and I'm going to relate back to Chomsky. Um, he makes a big claim, right, to saying that the bottom 5% can achieve the American dream. No, I don't think that's necessarily the case unless that dream is to be homeless, right? No. Um, it's unfortunate. I'm, it's just the case. So the big claim that he makes, and, he'll, and we'll support it throughout this, which is the privileged and powerful sectors of people, they don't like democracy. Because with democracy, a true, true democracy, what it does, it takes power away from the few and places it in the hands of the many. And what Chomsky offers is 10 principles about the concentration of wealth and power. And he says that the concentration of wealth yields the concentration of power. How he showed us was a depiction. He drew a chart, let's say. You have wealth on one end, and then you have power on another end, right? Now, as the cost of elections goes up, and you can give the example of Teddy Roosevelt's election and then Trump's election, the amount of money spent is tremendous. Now, as the cost of elections goes up, it actually forces these policy makers to be in the pockets of these corporate giants and that in turn concentrates power, right? That's how wealth becomes power. Now that power, that concentrated power, it then translates into legislation or policies, policies such as tax policy, uh, deregulation, rules of corporate governance, translates into legislation and reinforces the policy that once again fulfills the circle and concentrates more and more wealth right yeah, wow. now Chomsky is saying that this is a vicious cycle of wealth and power right where constantly a uh, a wealthy few has then the ability to influence policy to the extent that it only benefits them and he gives two examples the first one will be uh, Adam Smith right he goes right into the beginning 1776 great time for humanity America is being established and we are signing constitutions and Bill of Rights as a rule of law for our governance. Um, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, he gives the example of England, right? And he says 
that the principal architects of policy or those that are the main influencers of policy are the people who quote unquote own the society. And at that time in England, it was merchants and manufacturers. And he referred to these people as the masters of mankind. Those who are only looking out to gain for themselves and nothing for anyone else. So let me ask you both, does that, what does that look like today? Does that remind you of anything that's happening nowadays? You know, it actually does remind me of something and it just happened this week. Uh, on February 2nd, actually, there, uh, so a small country like Myanmar, they uh, just had you know, their elections mm -hmm. and their one party um, got maybe, I think, 70% of the vote. And uh, the other party, the opposition party, which mm -hmm. is the military party, yeah. uh, obviously received like, I think like 30 to 40% of the vote. So they did not win. And at that point, right, right and early in the morning, mm -hmm. uh, the military went in, arrested all the leaders of the, of the other party. Yeah, wow, mm -hmm. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Declared a state of emergency and took control of the government for one year. They say that uh, a poor showing you know, of support in the elections means only one thing. It means that there was voter fraud or the election was rigged, right? So have we, we just saw this you know, before uh, here in America, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it ties into it because you have these people who have been um, in power or who want power or are used to power and are unwilling to relinquish A it. global elite. Yes. Yeah. yeah, this this brings me back to something that Chomsky again was saying, which is he said that there's always like an ongoing like historically there's an ongoing clash between a push for democracy from the bottom of society and a push for control and domination from above. And the example that he gave was James Madison, right? James Madison, founding father of this country. Mm -hmm. um, he believed that the U.S. system should be and is designed so that power resides with the wealthy. There was a debate back in the day in their Congress hall or where, wherever, mm -hmm. where he literally verbalized that we need to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority, right? We need to protect what they believe, these guys, they believe that if democracy takes over, meaning people truly have power, they're gonna group up they're going to rush into their mansions, kill them, and take that mansion for themselves. There's a very serious fear in the global elite from this. But this, again, is not necessarily global elite. Uh, uh, this it's is like fear US. of like insurrection. You know, yes, yeah. of revolution, yes. of loss of control. But, I mean, you, you even saw that recently in, you know, the BLM protests mm -hmm. of, you know, that one example where they're walking through the wealthy neighborhoods and you had those two people standing outside with their guns drawn, pointing them at the protesters because they were scared that, oh, they're, you know, this guy's just going to come and these people are going to come and try and raid my house. And that's literally kind of what they're Were they scared about. of that or were they going out there to confront these people with their gun? I think that because everybody else in the, you know, in that whole like neighborhood, nobody else was out in front of their house with a gun. He, that they is didn't the have any, the, no, no other houses got well, raided you know, you have to, you have to think about it from, you know, two different perspectives. You mm -hmm. have the perspective of, People like people were generally scared of their neighborhood being, you know, robbed and and, uh, uh, and just taken, and yeah, that. pillaged and yeah. stuff like that. When they're walking through, and that's like, you know, that's a normal fear when you're seeing that the protest yeah. could get very violent. You know, yeah. that may be in a small part of the protest, but that was a a part of the protest. So mm -hmm. if someone's going through your neighborhood and there's a bunch of them and everything you've heard is just violence has been caused yeah. from it, mm -hmm. then it, you know. Well, I would also that say feeling. that the media, right, they only covered these violent altercations versus there was peaceful protests, okay? There was people dancing. Yeah. No other houses, I mean like no houses got, <laughs> yeah. got vandalized yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah. But no. these people were so convinced that yeah. this crowd was gonna harm them. Yeah. Yes. Wrongfully yeah. so. And then if we look at- That's a great point the insurrection that just took place or the in my opinion it was a coup attempt that happened here in america that group in my opinion was pretty violent um and they went what instead of going marching through like the wealthy like neighborhoods or whatever they went right after 
our Congress, our our head of government. That's why I feel like it's just, they literally tried to bring down our government, stop our government from doing something. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a stark contrast to what just happened in Myanmar and the intent of the crowd. You know, like people died, right? Like people died, and they don't even talk about how many people were harmed, injured. How the police officers, many of them, lost eyes, fingers all types of things uh yeah this is kind of like these guys' greatest fear right if we go back to james madison so at, at this time right he believed that you need to place power in the hands of the senate or other people who have sympathies towards people white men who own property right so meaning the constitution was established for that same regard with that same sentiment in mind because at the time the Senate was not elected officials, right? It was just, they were selected people from the same group. And th that's really what the fear was that one day there will be a revolution and these guys will come take everything away from us. So they said that the constitutional system, it has to be set up to prevent democracy. And I have mm -hmm. some things later on that I'll tie in that really support that statement. But, and like I, but up. as I said earlier, I think it's so interesting. He was so like focused on them taking from himself who was rich instead of people coming after the government yeah. right like they're more prepared to protect themselves yeah. than they are to protect mm -hmm. the leaders of our country exactly mm -hmm. so now keep in mind that this is like the fear that's that this is the fear idea of fear now if we talk about aristotle's uh his paper politics right you see he's in athens he's talking about they're the best democracy he says that if there is a political system that works, the best one is democracy, a true democracy. But he in itself, he also pointed out its flaws, right? The flaw, once again, way back, this is ancient Greece now, um, the many would combine forces and overthrow the rich property-owning few. This is like the same verbiage being used from all the way back then. Now, he proposed, uh, he proposed this thing. How do you um, kind of reduce this inequality so that there isn't one day a revolution because that's what you really need to do there's a needs to be reduction of inequality mm -hmm. yeah. which is the solution to people not revolting what he proposed was a welfare state right that's how you do it but what he also said that there's two ways to do it and chomsky agrees with this he said either you can reduce inequality okay mm -hmm. which is you try to set up programs so the bottom 5%, like in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the bottom 5% grows at the same rate as the top 5%, let's mm -hmm. say. Or you can reduce democracy. The solution is still the same. When if you take the power from the many, what are they actually going to do, right? And if you give, if you reduce inequality and technically make them, or some way that they can make money, they're also mm -hmm. not gonna revolt. Yeah, so is there any hope? for things to get better I at least from my experiences and what I've learned about you mean in our country or the world in our country you know most specifically and I mean because I also remember you know, like Noam Chomsky uh, he you know he mentioned that during the like Great Depression there was hope that things were gonna get better and people there was that feeling uh, the world was still ours the financial markets weren't as rigged as they are now in my opinion and uh but now like today it almost seems like it's too far gone mm. right we're so in indebted in this you know trickle down economics yeah. or the as you said that power cycle when you say getting better i think what you're referring to is will there be more democracy will or there be more, more democracy or less inequality so i think when you ask if it's going to get better in this country i think those days are over and what i can give you the example of is in the 1960s, uh, you know, leading to the 70s, there was a significant uh, democratization period, right? This is where all the legislation happened. This is where marches and all. so right here, I have civil rights, uh, women's rights, environmental policy and opposition to aggression. And there was a sentiment of like civilizing effects, which led to solidarity which mm -hmm. is against what these elites would want which mm -hmm. is us coming together yep. and actually giving a shit yep. about each other so let me tell you why that it's over because how they did it is after that time when all these things are happening and uh -huh. people are, they literally there was let me just find the verbiage these there was people higher ups these are like elite family people who are in uh, who are policy makers and so on and so forth there was the sentiment that the that the young people of the country 
it says this, were too independent of the government. They were too free. Too free. It said wow. that. Wow. So how you change wow. that is by shaping ideology and actually shaping and changing the game. At that time or after this period, what happened was a significant financialization of our society, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Banks were not like Corey's bank today, right? Banks were not that big. Um, insurance companies, these are like, actually you could go to the bank and take your money back, yeah, you know, and yeah. it would be okay unless everybody does it as a depression. Yeah. But uh, genuinely what I think this does is creates kind of a system where society has to become then more and more dependent on a government entity and or a financial institution. Um, what I was referencing again was the credit slavery, right? Like in a lot of ways, you know, even my everybody says this is that if you don't have good credit in this country, you're really not anything. But it's like who's who's setting the rules for how good your credit is, yeah. right? Well, you could have yeah. great credit, but if your credit line isn't that much, then Fair what's enough. the credit, right? Yeah. And I'm in, you know, mm -hmm. I, I and I kind of want to go back to, you know, it's what you said, uh, yes. how they want to shape ideology, and I don't think you really answered. Uh, as to how they shaped that ideology, I would think they would like shape it out of fear mm -hmm. or out of dissent, try and divide and conquer, almost almost exactly. like separate the classes even uh -huh. more, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the well, example. Sorry. I was just going to say that the whole that the whole point of the government, especially in today's times, that they they don't they don't want everybody to rise together. They want to create a common enemy. They want to split the classes. Because if they did end up unifying together, they would find out that, hey, the, what the government is doing is cruel and wrong and totally against what the people and the, the, and the, and the average day person's interests really are. Yeah. And so really what they're doing by creating the common enemy between you and your neighbor, if, yeah. you, you know, if you're one political party and your neighbor's other political party, you hate that person. Dude, not even neighbor. And this is like in families this happens. Yes, yeah, yes. And, yeah, and you can't, now, and, yeah. and, and by doing that, what they're doing is taking the power away from the people because yeah. they're creating ex extremist exactly. groups yeah. and making exactly. even more inequality by exactly. doing that. Yeah. So that leads me to my question. What, what is, since we're creating a common enemy out of your neighbor or whatever, uh, what can people believe in or more importantly which party is the party of the people mm -hmm. is there a party of the people you know there's mm -hmm. elites on both sides but which one is out there like looking out for the common man the most mm -hmm. um, I, and I think it's a hard thing to answer because uh, you could arguably say okay the um, Democratic Party seems like it's the obvious answer right like they have all these policies in place but we don't know what's in these hundred page, you know, uh, the bills that they pass yeah. or that they propose. Yeah. If it's if it's helping anybody really, or are they still like benefiting the wealthy? But yeah. or then you could think, okay, there's the Republican Party where it's traditionally mm -hmm. the party of the rich or whatever, and they want to help the lower classes less or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, why would a average middle class American? Uh, want to benefit that party or vote for that party if their interest isn't well because you know, uh, you know in in the in the main basic understanding of what a democrat versus a republican is you know one's mm -hmm. more progressive one's more conservative mm -hmm. and things like that and when you think about a republican and a conservative together they want to hold down the policies that are today they would they don't want to they don't want to continue changing things they don't want to change taxes they don't want to change uh, make new programs that may benefit the poor, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they don't want to help the poor. That just means that they don't want all of their tax dollars to go to the less poor. less taxes, right? And if there's less taxes, there's less money for the government to help the poor. Yes, but that but that's the thing. Like they they think that it should be a choice of whether or not to do that. And you know, I'm not speaking for the Republican class. That mm -hmm. can be you know totally different than what they actually believe yeah. everyone has their own beliefs and stuff like that yeah um, but in my own you know in my own opinion I'm not even a Republican but I'm saying that like it would be better to have the choice of you know the yeah. wh where your tax dollars go mm -hmm. and then you know when when a certain program gets filled then okay well you only get to select between the other programs and, and you know but I don't want to you know diverge from the topic yeah, yeah. and you know I think I in terms of my like political ideology I think I'm probably more Republican, right? Mm -hmm. But I am a firm believer that uh, 
things need to change. Things, yeah. They Here wrote the con when they wrote the Constitution. That was in the 1776 or whatever. Uh, this is a different world now. 300 years later, like or however many years later, this is a you know like, things yet. are completely different. Things societies change. Yep. People yep. change. Yep. Things need to you know get wrong. I would say that you know the one constant. You guys are right that society has developed. Corey said the word choice, right? And choice is a word that leads to a certain amount of privilege. Privilege leads to a certain amount of education. Education then leads to a certain amount of opportunity. What I'm trying to say here, I think that there's a there's one aspect that is a huge difference when we're looking at, as we've said, the top of society and the bottom of society. And that's the concept of financial literacy, right? Um, to be able to make not conservative, but good decisions about an individual's financial security, right? Mm -hmm. Does that responsibility fall on the government? And why would it be necessary? I'll ask either one of you, but I'd like maybe Corey's opinion on this is why would financial literacy be an important aspect of society? You know, that's a great question, Ali. Uh, to be completely honest, I think financial literacy is one of the most important parts and aspects of any individual person's life. Like, being able to manage your finances, being able to invest, being able to know uh, how, you're, uh, how your spending is going compared to uh, the amount of income that you have is one of the most important tools that you can have to lead you from one class to the next. When you think about it, in terms of socioeconomic classes, the, the classes that continue to stay above, like the, the upper class tends to stay above because their financial literacy is so extremely in-depth. When you think about how they are so knowledged in the ability to invest in, early in, in their uh, childhoods, when um, the, the elites and the, the upper classes, what they do is they invest in these different tools that not only make them tax exempt, they make them uh, so that they don't have to spend any taxes at all. When, uh, in one of the documentaries that we talked about, they, it even said that the problem and the tax rates are lower for the wealthier people due to most of their income coming from capital gains. If you hold a stock for over mm -hmm. one year, your mm -hmm. tax on those capital gains are only 15%. So you're actually yep, being yep. taxed le less than the people who are making $30,000 a year, even if you make a million dollars off those capital gains. Okay. And financial literacy is so important because the people at the lower in, uh, lower part of the spectrum, the lower part of the uh, socioeconomic classes, they don't even know how to invest. And not only that, they don't even have the money to invest in general. Okay. And you know, in school, you're never taught what a checkbook is. Mm -hmm. You're never taught about how to manage your loans, mm -hmm. how to manage your spending in general, mm -hmm. in, in, the, in what the government teaches you in you know, public school. You're never taught any of that. Usually you're only taught that by your personal family. And so yes, I think financial literacy is a very important tool and aspect to what we have today. But on the same side, I don't think that the elites want the average day consumer to have financial literacy because it ties back to the whole Robin Hood thing of, you know, the second that they get in control of their finances and realize the power that they have, it actually ends up detrimenting the elite. Mm -hmm. So they yeah. want to keep you yeah. dumb. And really in reality, elites want to keep people dumb because yeah. it makes it easier to control them. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, financial literacy is a tool to increase like inequality, right? Yes, it, it, yeah. the, 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 the lower the, the lower the amount of people who know and have financial literacy, the more inequality there is, but there's also a huge difference in power. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, as you know, as you said earlier, how these guys were able to accumulate so much wealth uh, through these early investment opportunities mm -hmm. that somehow they got word of super early that might not have even been open or on the public market for just your average mm -hmm. guy to invest in. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's not even a fair shot to get into these yeah. small startups, you know, that'll get you uh, you know, to the top. Yeah. Yeah. The example that I would give here is from the uh, third piece of content that we watched, which was inequality, how wealth becomes power. Uh, and they focus some uh, wealthy families uh, and wealthy individuals in their daily lives. And one of the individuals, he was in Austrian, an Austrian German, uh, really, really wealthy billion dollar family, billions of dollars. And he was showing his, this office that he has, 
And what he called it was the quote unquote family office. And the goal or the purpose of that office and everybody that's employed by that office is to manage and invest and grow the wealth of that one family. Mm. Now, how many families can set up an office and manage their wealth? With this is like 18 people working in there for mm -hmm. one family's wealth. Mm -hmm. It's wow. yeah. amazing. Yeah. And that's what typically happens is that in any time that people accumulate large sums of wealth, what they do is just they invest it and then have mm -hmm. other people manage their funds. So clearly at least so clearly at least we can agree that it's important to be financially literate. So I'll ask you once again, Corey, how can the average person, you, me and I, how can we get involved um, and educated? How can we learn about financials, how our financials and yeah. be literate? Yeah, and that's another great question. And I think that people don't realize how many opportunities are out there to become financially literate? I, I would personally say it's actually very easy to become financially literate. If you go onto YouTube right now, you can type in stock market 101, economics 101, how to trade stocks, how to buy stocks, yeah. what is an option, what is a right. straddle, what is right. this and that. Right. And there's people who have out of their, the goodness of their own heart, gone on and created videos to explain to the average day consumer what they can do to be able to do all these uh, savvy investments and stuff like that. You know, and there, there, there's obviously more in-depth videos as well. There's, there's hour-long videos explaining various topics mm -hmm. in the stock market and just the economy in general. Yeah. And so, and then there's also courses. You can go online, type in stock market, course or uh, buying and selling, making day trades, uh, courses and stuff like that. So let me ask you, do you think financial, so becoming like financially illiterate is directly tied into understanding the stock market? No, not at all. No, the stock market and financial literacy are two separate things, but, fi or sorry, let me take that back. Just like Catholicism, is a branch of Christianity. The stock market is a branch of financial literacy. So financial literacy, you know, it's so many different variables from your own personal finances to how to manage your own loans, to how to manage your investments and how to become tax exempt in certain ways and certain investments and things like that, like 529 plans. Until I started my job and I got my certifications to become a financial advisor, I had no idea what a 529 plan is. And that's essentially all you do is you invest money into a, a government programmed ta uh, tax exempt fund for college for uh, college education. And you do this over extended periods of time for your kids. So like, let's say you have a kid named John. John is born in 2020. You, you invest $100 a month for 20 or 18 years. And so by the time he graduates high school, he should have about like $70,000. And the capital gains on that, it's all tax-free. There's no taxes on it as long as all the pay payments mm -hmm. are for the individual uh, going to college. See, so my stance on how we can get educated about it, um, it may be a little bit different and may, you know, you may think some way about it, but what I think, because Corey just mentioned a, that's a government program. I think, yeah, if the government is going to be collecting as many taxes and actually putting out the policy for the same, you know, financials and, and everything else we need to be aware of, I think it's also their responsibility to educate the people. What I think is that what we need to set up at the grassroots level in underprivileged communities, minority communities, uh, communities where there's heavily uh, a lot more women what we need to do is set up programs real programs classes physical places I mean I know it's a little bit different with COVID-19 but there needs to be some sort of program where people can actually go and people at the bottom can go and learn about financial situations and how they can even at their own level make fiscally responsible decisions yeah so take classes have work complete homework on becoming financially literate. And I think that's big because as what you said, Corey, there's tons of information out there available online, YouTube, but then it it really like separates the pack because there's people who 
really want it, right? And the people who, who really want it, they're gonna go out there, they're gonna watch these videos and they're gonna apply it to their real life. There's other people who are gonna watch these videos, get excited and not do anything. So is that the detriment of the government? Like, uh, how can you blame the government when, let's say even if these free, free programs are out there for the uh -huh. average day consumer and there's people who take those, take those courses and apply it like you just said and become financially savvy and make a lot of money in their investments. But then there's these other people who take those courses but then don't go do anything. Why are you blaming the government for your for your lack of uh, awareness? Because the, the billions of dollars in taxes and the lack of infrastructure for it. Well, I think also, uh, you know, you could put it in this aspect, you know, like the government tries to uh, almost, you know, the government almost thinks that we, that the majority of the people can't uh, make decisions like for themselves, right? That's why they have all these rules in place and that's mm -hmm. why there's this small group that's elected to make decisions for us because ultimately they think that we can't make decisions for ourselves. Yeah, right? so you think it should be like almost a government mandated program through you know public education for you know a 12 year degree uh in like just you know high school it mm -hmm. should be government mandated that you have to take a personal finance class you know which i completely us, agree with it yeah you know so i learned uh in middle school i learned like u.s history right and then in high school they made it mandatory for you to learn u.s history world uh -huh. history all these yeah. things yeah. why couldn't they just do a uh, like investing one-on-one. I agree. Saving for your Such a simple thing. Too. It's already a public school. It might yeah. as well do that. Might yeah. as well. Yeah. And that ties back to what I was saying before is that the elite don't necessarily don't want, want that, that to happen. No. And that's because they want to keep the inequality. The, yeah. the, the, the dumber they keep you, the easier it is to control you. You know, so that actually leads us to the next thing that we wanted to discuss because there's a fine line between, let's say, the traditional form of Marxism and then what this neo-Marxism thing that we live in looks like is what, um, again, Chomsky was saying. Now, the, if you remember, uh, there's Alan Greenspan. I want to tell you guys a story about that. It's odd because the legal verbiage in some of these policies or the rules that define our lives they're kind of rooted in these Marxism concepts or like the words that they're using, right? So I'll give you the example of Alan Greenspan, right? He was the uh, commerce minister or whoever, I don't know the exact term for it, but he, during his time, uh, there was a lot of economic stimulation in a healthy way. He was famous for this, right? Mm -hmm. He testified to Congress and the word, this phrase that he used really threw me off because this phrase, it's, it's like a Marxist term right off the bat or like a proletariat or whoever. And he says that the reason why he was so successful in his time of economic stimulation, he said that he designed policy to increase what he called greater worker insecurity. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is so odd. So I want to ask you just in case if our listeners aren't, you know, don't really know, but what is the what is a Marxism essentially like mm. a pure definition? Oh, absolutely! Thank you. Yeah, I should clarify that, right? So, and so there's Karl Marx. He's either Aust I think he's an Austrian guy back in the day. He was in England and he was uh, really a what at that time there was no such thing as Marxism. He had like a communist play. So basically, what Marxism is is a system of society where there is two factions what he called the bourgeoisie or the owners of society and or the people who controlled the means of production. And the other side was the 99% or the 98, mm -hmm. which they called or he called mm -hmm. proletariats, which is the factory workers or the people that can basically be seen as an asset to the mm -hmm. company as a whole. Again, so that's why what, uh, what Chomsky is saying is he's calling neo-Marxism is what I'm saying that you can see and reflective of not only policy uh, that's been put out over the years, but also in the verbiage of uh, people that speak who are in power as well, right? This word greater worker insecurity, what Greenspan is saying or the concept is that if you keep workers insecure, like you not necessarily raises, that you keep them uncertain in that aspect, if you keep them precarious, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, they're not going to ask for a raise. They're not going to ask for a revolution yeah. because they don't even know if they're doing good enough. They don't even know their own value. Mm -hmm. And that's what he attributed his success in stimulating the economy Definitely. for. Yeah. yeah. 
And just to stay on track, right, if you look at Marxism changing the rules, I wanted to touch on this term anti-American. Okay, let me quickly, mm -hmm. if you guys can tell me, you think anti-American, what comes to mind? Anti-American, I would say, is people who, man, that's a tough question yeah. because right off the bat because it, it can mean so many different things. Anti-American can mean, you know, oh, you're not for freedom, you're not for this, you're not for that. But really, on the, another side of the spectrum, it can mean, oh, you're not, you're, you're not a Republican. You don't value the old, uh, old traditions mm -hmm. of America. Mm -hmm. You want to change things to a more communist, you know, reality. But that may not, you know, that, like there's so many different ways and different perspectives. Yeah. Like, so I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind, right? I really appreciate both your guys' perspective on this. Um, and I'm, again, I'm going to keep going back to this, but I'm going to reference something that Chomsky said again. So he said that the term anti-American or anti-any nation, that actually is totalitarian phrasing. Mm -hmm. and, and what he says, oh. in, in a free society, that term does not exist. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you the example. He gives two examples of two different countries. Right? The first is Italy. He mm -hmm. says that if someone is criticizing Berlusconi or the corruption of an Italian state, they are not anti-Italian all of a sudden, right? If somebody called them that, they would laugh. And the reason why that is that at one point they were not a free society. Mm -hmm. And at one point, if you were to speak against, uh, you know, their dictator, you, you couldn't, right? Obviously, yeah. it's, a, it's a fascist yeah. society. Yeah, I mean, we see that today, right? In like Russia and in China, right? So we have like in China, if you speak out, you know, against the Communist Party, all of a sudden you are, I guess, you know, I, I don't think they have the phrase anti-China, but yeah. you are not, you're against, you're, you're against our people, yeah. yes, right? And exactly. same in Russia, they have the opposition guy, he speaks out against, in, against the Kremlin, the exactly. guy who has power. In the old yeah. Soviet Union, anybody who spoke against the state, they were called anti-Soviet. Yeah, they're, mm -hmm. they're doing it now. Yeah. So basically, this is where that line gets blurred, right? If you start talking like this, if we're supposed to be in a free society, all of a sudden this can culture kicks back in and you're labeled as somebody who's against conformity or against the people if you criticize concentrated power then you're against society or you're against the people and that's this elite culture of something that I I cannot accept in my life but what this forms into is a, a form of government known as a or a form of society known as plutonomy as he calls it okay which is where a small percentage of the world's population is gathering concentrated increasing amounts of wealth right with the main goal of profit in the next quarter even if it's based on financial manipulation high salaries high bonuses even if you have to produce overseas bottom dollar that's what it comes down to right um the rest the rest of the people right they're what you call or what he calls or what chomsky calls precarious proletariats or precarious right so what does that mean so how he's referencing it is what he's calling the working people of the world who live increasingly precarious lives precarious meaning uncertainty uh, around uncertainty and like this era of danger not the american dream right exactly yeah. exactly so again if you use precarious as a term it becomes this neo-marxism verbiage yeah and it's really hard to distinguish if indeed we are this free democracy right because the example of italy i think is a phenomenal example yeah so this leads me to our uh third you know documentary actually uh and this one's called inequality for all and the and the person who who narrates this his name is robert reich he's a professor of economics at uc berkeley and he's the former secretary of labor under bill clinton and uh what he says right at the beginning is that you know inequality is necessary because you know people need some incentive to work hard right so do you guys well, so what do you guys think do you think that's that's the case that we need like inequality to a certain extent so so to, that's a good question but to kind of segue off that question but to answer that question is that you have to come at the philosophical question of is is inequality normal like not everyone is equal there nobody's equal because everyone's different if yeah. everyone's equal then yeah. everyone's the same but nobody's yeah. the same I because agree. there's yeah. different people in different situations yeah, I agree. come from different walks of life mm -hmm. if you want equality for all that means that everyone has the exact same bank account 
same opportunity, same this, same that. Yeah. But that's just not how it is. But and everybody does how, have the same opportunity. Yeah, no, yes, yes, yes. Everyone has the same opportunity. You know how many to. how yeah. many opportunities those people are given is a little different. You know, based off based off you know the where okay. they come from and yep. um, but to ask whether or not inequality is necessary, I wouldn't say is the best way to word is that is inequality something that you can never take away from society. And if that is the question, then yes, I totally agree that there there is never going to be a time that inequality is not there. It, it it does serve to the fact that yes, we should fight inequality and you know provide programs to help the underprivileged mm -hmm. and things like that. Yes, yeah. I totally agree. But I think inequality will always be around as long as human species is around. To well, say that to say whether inequality is necessary is kind of the same concept that. Inequality is necessary if you're if you need to control a certain amount of people, right? If you keep them always in that state of inequality, it's not mm -hmm. that. Um, and I'm not saying that the invisible hand of business is also holding people down. That's the last thing that I'm saying. I'm just thinking that, you know, as we've seen that these policies are made by people who are also favored by those same policies, yeah. right? Or have yeah. a hand in it or whatnot. And in that system, inequality is necessary. Let me also ask so, you because Corey touched on a. You know everybody is not necessarily equal and that's more of like an internal aspect but you know what i'm saying like if you look at outside everybody should at least have kind of a, a base of again whether it's government intervention or not but what i'm trying to say is this system of inequality is necessary but what i'll ask both of you is is it indeed inequality or is it um, inequity? Well, I think uh, so. Wow, powerful I, question. Yeah, but I, I think you know, circle back just a little bit, you know, before I answer your question, Ali, uh, that inequality. Uh, so maybe not not necessary, but like what Corey said, it's always going to be there, and it has to be there, like what you said, because otherwise, if everybody's just going to be the same, why would you do anything? Right, so there mm -hmm. needs to be that separate. But we're at this point now, especially here in America, as America actually is the most, uh, or not the most, but it is at the level of a third world country in terms of like inequality. That shows, um, all, you know, like the numbers in this, you know, in this documentary that we need a healthy dose of, of inequality. It's at the point now where so the just the income levels are so far yeah. apart yeah. that it creates this unhealthy sense and drives down economic activity. And the most important thing about it is because these people who are accumulating all of this wealth nonstop, their pro the main problem is they're not spending mm -hmm. the money. They yeah. keep the money, but they just keep getting more and more and more. And the economic activity is supposed to be driven by the middle class. Yes. If the middle class isn't making money or is making only a finite amount of money yeah and then all this other all these other guys all these rich people they can only buy so many pillows yeah they can only buy so many things but they have bigger like distribution of yes. the wealth yeah so it creates a huge economic problem yeah and it ties back to a quote from the documentary actually is that uh they say that the larger the size and the healthier the middle class the stronger the economy is because yeah. They are naturally the money that they acquire through their salaries exactly. or even their investment income is going back and being spent exactly. immediately because they need it for their all their immediate needs, yeah, whether it be exactly. groceries or the college educations yeah. or just you know gas. And exactly. Yeah. 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 You know what you guys are saying is actually reminding of me of another thing that I was listening to same time. So uh, the principle number seven of the concentration of wealth and power is engineer elections, right? He references the 14th Amendment, which was technically put out to protect freed slaves, right? Due process by the law, which I'm saying, and technically there's no real evidence that it was ever used for free slaves, but it was used for corporations, right? Their right to due process, their rights, mm -hmm. which cannot be infringed, their right to lobby people, um, really influence elections, whatever it may be. Um, and eventually the concept or of this corporate entity, it in legal terms is a person. It gradually became a person. Um, he also said that corporations are state created legal fictions, right? He's basically saying they mm -hmm. weren't a thing. Yeah. And it, historically speaking, they were forged yeah. from a thin air. Yeah. 
And then he referenced, so 1970 we have, uh, or 76 actually, we have Buckley v. Vallejo, which is really just translates to or gives the power. So that's when money became a mm -hmm. form of speech, a form of free speech, meaning where you put your money to, uh -huh. it has an influence, right, yeah. of a decision or, yeah. or whatnot. So now if you, for instance, if you put a million dollars in a guy's, uh, in, for instance, a political party's super PAC or something, right? That's like your vote or your vote and in your circles, that's like, yeah, yeah. did I give a million guys? So this is like influence, whatever. Yeah. Then there's in 2009, 2010, the Citizens United Federal Election, right? So the right of free speech as a corporation, it cannot be curtailed. So yeah. you can't say that it's not a person ever, right? And corporations then can buy elections with virtually no constraint. Uh -huh. That's what happens. Super PACs is really an odd concept, super PACs. Yeah. Um, and I just want to jump to principle number 10 to like close this off and close at least this uh, the segment that we're doing before we get into our personal experiences. Um, is principle 10, which is marginalize the population. I think this is a really good sum up point and I want to hear your guys' first reaction from when I repeat this to you, right? Um, is there was a study conducted, there's uh, some kind of government guy, Martin Gilling, and it was a study of the relation between public attitudes, public, like the municipality's yeah. attitudes, and public policy. Uh -huh. What this study found, guys, is that 70% of the population, and arguably this could mm -hmm. be a much higher number today, has no way of influencing policy. And the next thing that he said really fucked me up. They may as well be in another country. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. Your thoughts? I mean, I think a lot of people feel that way, especially here in America, right? I mean, uh, that's why I think that like tensions are so high uh, and things are so like polarized is because people feel like uh, they haven't been heard for a long time mm -hmm. and that uh, their choices of what's going on or what happens in this country, they're losing more and more yeah. of that. And the more polarized it gets, it, the, you know, the more separate it gets, the, the only the side that wins Get, gets the choices in in terms of policies and exactly. and, and things like that exactly. but the side that loses feels like their voice isn't even heard even if they're 48 oh, yeah. percent oh you know you get 52 percent that wins but now you're gonna say 150 million people don't really get a choice in anything yeah that's a large amount of people but uh when it, when you you know go behind one person when when there's a majority of people who back one person that's really when the the steam steam ball goes or whatever it's called yep. is like there there's there's more policy being uh, put into action because there's a mm -hmm. majority of the people that really are striving for this one thing. Yeah. Just kind of like ties back to you know your whole civil rights conversations and women's rights uh, back in like 1950s, 1960s, and so so on and so forth mm -hmm. was because there's so many people who are backing those those policies and things like that, that, that so many policies got pushed forward and so many actions were taken mm -hmm. to progress our society to a better, more equal yeah. opportunity uh, world. That people were voting more, they felt like their votes mattered. And I mean, we look here in California, our vote for president really does not matter. We know that California is going to go blue yeah. and it's always gonna be that way. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It's gonna. The only thing we our vote really counts for is, I guess, what happens in our our uh, our congressional district yeah. or our city yeah, our local or government. Our, our local yeah. government. Yeah. That's the only thing our vote really counts. Yeah, but for. if states don't govern themselves, then really, it's like, what's the point of even having those? Besides, like having nicer roads. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's true, but it's just it goes back to the thing, right? I mean, uh, in terms of like political power, our we don't really have much of a say at all. All we, all we can do is vote on a senator mm -hmm. or a house you know, representative yeah. uh, to go there and hopefully they uh, you know, represent their constituents um, the way it reflects. But yeah. how do they even know how we exactly. feel? Exactly. Yeah, some, some great points you guys are bringing up too. I think that what we've not spoken about today, because I think this is a good 
point to start closing up the night. Um, what we've not really spoken about is either our perspectives, our access, um, what was our experience growing up in our society, the society that today not only did we criticize, we questioned, but at the end of the day, we are also, you know, a part of it. And I think us three can actually agree on this is that in terms of how our lives are, how we spent our lives, how we live our lives, we can technically count ourselves in the top, what, 1% of historically the world, mm -hmm. right? We live better than 6,000 years ago, that's for damn sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just to touch on quickly, briefly, uh, any stories that you guys might have. So, you guys have any personal experience that either inequality or policy makers maybe, or power and wealth, mm -hmm. uh, something that you experienced. Do you have any stories like that? Uh, anything you've seen that you were like, whoa, whoa. You know, uh, I guess my only personal experience is, you know, growing up, um, I had mostly everything I wanted. Um, I was able to get a car right when I got my license, all these types of things, you know, I had a pretty normal, comfortable upbringing, right? But now that I'm older um, and I see things, how I need to start accumulating this for myself, um, I definitely think that the path to get to where I want to be or to where my goals always were doesn't seem very straightforward. It seems like it's going to be a windy road and I feel, I'm feeling more and more pressure as to I need to find a almost a shortcut or a straight line up mm -hmm. that windy road to get to where I want to yeah. be. And to be honest, that picture seems a little bit harder you know, yeah. to see every day. But you yeah. see, uh, how I see that is, and I'm not criticizing you here at yeah, all, yeah. how I see the, see the windy road, there's already been a, whether the road before was windy or not, is it's kind of not the point, but you're at this point, and whether it's windy at this point until your next phase, Mm -hmm. Right, it's it's like a wind, but you understand like they're on the completely opposite third world scale of that is people would never even get to that point to be having the opportunity yeah. to have the windy road that yeah, we have. I agree 100%. I, yeah. I'm telling you, I I just graduated and I am in a way better position. I, it's, yeah. it's almost like selfish of me yeah. to think the way I do, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, fair I enough. mean, naturally, it's just like what you said, if you could change the rules of the game, you know, would you? And I mean, yeah, I would yeah. for myself. And yeah. that's, that's just part of that like human. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, it that, it like, only, yeah, you see that human uh, innate like emotion, which is yeah. if you, um, if you have some sort of beneficial thing, it's only like natural that you want your friends, family, your best buds, the people that you yeah. chose to grow up with and live your life with it's only natural that you would hook them up right it's yeah and all that you want you, to you could say that that ties back to darwinism and you know survival mm. of the fittest that you know it's competitive you want the best for yeah. you your offspring and the people that are closest to you in your social circle so by doing that you know you will you, like if you're given the opportunity to rig the game in, in your favor you're gonna take that opportunity and obviously you know from you know a more perspective people will choose not to maybe rig the game in their favor if that means that they're destroying the lives of or a majority of the, yeah. the, of the people other yeah. people there's there i would say that there's a larger majority of the people are like that and there's a slimmer few who i would even categorize as the elite mm -hmm. who would say no i don't care if they get hurt like i am rigging this game for me because yeah. i am trying to win for my family yeah yes and you know to tie back to your i couldn't role, agree with that more also. yeah even though they arguably already won yeah yeah, yeah exactly and then and mainly because they you know they want to keep their money and have their kids be able to have the same Opportunity slash chance to you know I would, hold on to that I would that argue money. that this generation or the previous one always wants better than yeah. what they have. Yeah, because exactly. I want the same for my kid, and yeah. that's what I was told. Yeah. yeah, and to catch back to you know the, the thing that you said, Jordan, about how you are almost looking for a shortcut slash straight line to your future and to success, um, and you know your your, your past kind of is not it is is more of a zigzag to where you are today i would say it's almost like the opposite is that your past is a straight line 
but your future will always be a zigzag because there will be so many things that you will have to adapt to and adjust mm -hmm. to because yeah. there's so many random situations that occur on a day-to-day -day basis and decisions that you make on the day-to-day -day basis that will that will continue to make a zigzag. But when you look back in your past, everything sound like looks so linear, even though yeah. it's really just you adjusting to the situation at the very exact moment that you're yeah. in. And so uh, like, I would argue to say that there really is no straight line. You're always going to be throwing curveballs. You're never going to be in the same place that you yeah. thought you were going to be in 10 years. There's a very select few people who are like, this is what I want to do in 10 years. This is where I'm going to be in this. And absolutely. that's exactly what really happened. Up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You guys both made some great points. I think today was a phenomenal discussion as well. We tackled uh, inequality, I think. Um, at least we have a firm understanding of why it's happening, maybe some things of, that we can do to improve it, right? Um, but again, thank you all for listening. We're going to go ahead and sign off today. As always, my name is Ali Laik, and I'm sitting here with Jordan Brown and Corey Bearclaw, and where it's not just black and white. Please tune in next week where we'll be talking about addiction. Thank you again. See you next week.